Uh, Amen. Amen. Well, it's great to see you. I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. And uh, if you were with us last Sunday, then you heard our brother Matt preach. I don't know if Matt is here today. I I don't think I've seen him. Matt, are you here? You're not here. Another one down. (laughs) A lot of people sick today. But uh, our brother Matt preached, and he did an excellent job. Uh, I wish he was here so I could just say, great job. He'd be sitting right there. Great job, Matt. We're so blessed. Uh, he studied faithfully. Matt's working full-time, and so this, was, this is a guy who, in his time after work over the last few weeks, was studying and preparing and writing and then rewriting, and uh, we were just really blessed. As he shared this text from the end of chapter 4, where we saw a glimpse of a beautiful church, a healthy church, a vibrant church. They were bold in the proclamation of the word, and they were generous. And, uh, and we heard the story about how Barnabas sold his, his land, and he gave the proceeds, and he laid it down to the apostles' feet. And there wasn't a needy person among them. And it was beautiful. It was like a little foretaste of heaven. Afterwards, I just wanted to hug everybody and just say, isn't it? It's just amazing. Um, Well, we turn to Acts chapter 5. And here in verses 1 to 11, we catch a little foretaste of hell. Uh, And that's the truth. This is a difficult passage. If you're joining us today for the first time, just want to acknowledge, this is a difficult passage. This is the, this is a, is that really in the Bible kind of passage? A wake-up call kind of passage. And it's good for us. You know, one of the tremendous benefits of preaching through the Bible, and, and you've heard us say this time and time again, is that it forces us to deal with what's next in the text. And if we were left to our own devices and could just select whichever passages we'd like to study on any given week, there are some passages that we would all avoid. And I would argue that this is one of them. And yet this is what's next for us as a congregation. And what will happen today is our preconceived ideas of God will be challenged. So... You've been warned. That's what's going to happen. As I read this text, even before we explain it, as I just read aloud Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, there will be some people in this room who will find themselves feeling like the God of Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, is unfamiliar, is foreign, is perhaps even offensive, and certainly doesn't resemble the God of my imagination. And again, that is good for us. Because we want to worship God for who He is not for who we imagine him to be. Now, all that being said, there's a heaviness, a weightiness to this text, and I acknowledge that I feel heavy and weighty. Uh, it's been a weird morning. The worship team didn't say anything about it, but it has been, it's just been weird. I mean, we've got a little one in our house that's feeling under the weather, and so a few nights of lousy sleep, I'm feeling not my best self right now. We got in this morning and threw up the ladder and tried to fix this projector, and we got the new bulbs, and guess what? The filter is also busted, so we've got to replace that too. And so we're scrambling to get the sheets out. And the whole team, you can just see the whole team. Everybody's 25 minutes behind where they want to be. We're all flustered. And we just stood in the kitchen and took a deep breath. And I said, God has this. You know, I, I really truly believe that it's, it's the enemy. He tries to sow these little seeds of, of discord. He tries to get us flustered and discouraged. And the reality is we don't need a projector. And I don't even need sleep. We, you know, we, it's fine. This is God's day. This is His Word. He means for us to hear this. And so we're going to ask for His help. Uh, I need His help as I preach, and you need His help as you hear. And so let's just ask Him now. We're going to pray together. Lord, we need You. Thank You for some quiet this day just to be still or just to catch our breath. Lord, I feel it in my flesh. I feel it in my life. 
And I have no idea what the men and women in front of me have been living through this morning, but I would hazard a guess that there are many in this room who themselves just feel flustered, feel rushed, feel distressed or distracted or discouraged. We need to hear from you, God. And I thank you that we can hear from you now. As your word goes forth, you promise us it never returns void. As the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. We believe all of this to be true. So God, we're coming to you today with great expectation. God, speak to us. Lord, and having lived in this text all week long, Lord, I would just add my plea God, I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would press into our hearts that which we need to hear, and I pray that we would respond to what we see here today. God, I pray that we would not play with you today, but that we would submit to you and surrender to you. And I ask that in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living active word to us today. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this is a difficult text. One of my great privileges as a a preacher is that I get to read these passages and I get to live in them all week long. And it's a great joy. I get to study what what many wise people have written in explanation of these passages, and I get to pray about it and just ask God. It's like I'm chewing on it all week long. Like, press this into my heart, Lord. Show me what it is we need to see. Now, some passages, as you chew on them, it's just sweetness all week, you know, and and you're just, you're high-fiving everyone, and you're, you're bubbly. This is one of those passages, as I've chewed on it all week long, it has been difficult. A a real sense of, of the fear of the Lord, a real holy dread has fallen upon me, and I feel it in my bones. Because this church here in Acts chapter 5 is a New Testament church. <laughs> this, is a, this is a Holy Spirit-filled church. This is a washed-by-the-blood-of-Jesus-Christ church. 
This is a there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus church. This is a church just like ours. These are a people just like us. And in this church just like ours, a husband and wife brought their sin with them into the sanctuary. And they were carried out in a body bag. And that is frightening. And if we are a people who take the Word of God seriously, we all ought to feel a real dread as we ponder this. Our God does not play games. And we've talked an awful lot over the last few weeks about how we long to be a Spirit-filled church. How we long to know the presence of God in this place in a mighty, powerful way. And amen to that. I want that so badly. I want that for us. But we learn here this morning that revivals sometimes produce casualties. We learn here this morning that as the holy presence of God comes in, the sin must necessarily go out. Ananias and Sapphira learned this lesson the hard way. So we have some important questions we need to ask this morning. The first question is this. What exactly was the sin of Ananias and Sapphira? That seems like a fair question. What was it? At first glance, your, your first guess might be the sin of greed. I mean, that is the context of this story. We find that they sold their property and they decided that they were going to keep some of the proceeds back for themselves and then they were struck dead. So, greed, that must be it, right? Well, no. If we look closely at the text, that can't be it. Because look at what Peter told Ananias in chapter 5, verse 4. He told, referring to this property, he said, while it remained unsold... Did it not remain your own? The implied answer is, of course it did. It was yours. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Answer, of course it was. Peter's saying, that was your house. You know, if if you were listening last week when our brother Matt walked us through at the end of chapter 4, and we saw that radical generosity, one of the things that Matt pulled out, and he was exactly right, was that the generosity in the church, what was so powerful about it, was that it wasn't mandatory. It wasn't mandatory. They didn't go around saying, all right, you sell your house, you sell your house, and bring us all the money. No, no, no. People saw great need, and they said, I'm going to sell this surplus that I have to meet that need. It was beautiful. And Peter's saying to Ananias, it was your, you didn't have to sell your house. And when you did sell your house, you didn't even need to give it all. It's fine that you brought some. You could have brought some. Okay, well then what was the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. It's that they tried to lie to God. So they saw the attention that the generous people in their congregation were receiving, and they wanted some of that. They saw the Barnabas story and and looked at the way that everybody was looking at Barnabas, who sold his land and gave all of the proceeds to the church, and they said, "I, I, I want a little bit of that. And so inspired to be generous, but also longing for a little bit of glory, they sold their land, and and after they sold it, they realized, well, actually, you know what? Nobody knows how much we receive for the land. If we give most of the proceeds and keep a little bit back for ourselves, then that's perfect. You know, we, we could use this money, but we could have the glory and keep a bit of this money, and nobody will ever know. One commentator notes here, it's crucial to note that the point is not that God demands our financial accounts to be in order. Greed is a sin, but that's not what he's referring to here. But rather, it's that God hates hypocrisy of any kind. How much more that which is deliberate and designed to test the Spirit of the Lord. That is the sin that came under judgment in this story. 
It is the sin of hypocrisy. And I'm not a mind reader, but I would suspect that here in the room, you're hearing that, and some of us are thinking, well, that's not satisfying. The sin of hypocrisy, that doesn't feel like a very big sin. Murder, perhaps. That would be appropriate if God struck them down for murder. Or if they had grossly taken advantage of someone. If they had done something to to children or to the widows. But the sin of hypocrisy is such a small sin. And it does feel small, doesn't it? They were radically generous, after all. It's quite commendable, the amount of money that they brought in. So what if they fibbed? A little white lie. They wanted to impress their peers. Anyone here ever been guilty of that? Wanted to seem just a little bit holier than they actually were. Anyone here been guilty of that? Wanted to present nicely to the congregation. To be esteemed. To be admired. Small sin. The kind of sin that's probably been committed by some people in this room, perhaps even this morning. Just little fibs to make me appear just a little more righteous than I actually am. It's a little sin. Which makes God's response all the more shocking. Look again at verse 5 and 6. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and they wrapped him up and they carried him out and buried him. Here's one of the details that really struck me as I studied this week. They don't even tell his family. So this is, this is a real story. These are real people. And Ananias dies, and they don't even scatter out to find his family. His wife comes in three hours later. She doesn't even know that her husband is dead. Which just highlights the great fear that fell upon the Lord. They realized something serious has happened here. They wrapped him up the way that you would if there was an animal that died of an infectious disease and it was in your midst. They wrapped him up and they got him out of there as quickly as they could and they buried him lest the judgment of the Lord fell upon the whole congregation. Three hours later, his wife died and the same thing happened. And we hear this and we say, that doesn't sound like Jesus. Is anyone, you don't have to raise your hand, but isn't that where our minds are going? That, that's, but this doesn't square with what I see in Jesus. And so we dismiss it, and so we try to set it aside in our minds. But here's a question. Doesn't it sound like Jesus? If we really listen to Jesus, doesn't this sound like Him? Matthew 23. You could turn there if you want, but let me just, I'm going to read you some of the highlights. Let's summarize. In Matthew 23, Jesus is speaking directly to the sin of hypocrisy. He's speaking to the religious leaders who are putting on a show for the world, but internally they're living in sin. Here's what Jesus says. Woe to you, you whitewashed tombs. Presentable on the outside, but inside you're full of dead man's bones. Woe to you, you blind guides. You who put heavy burdens on others that you can't even carry yourself. Woe to you, you who love your seats of honor. You who pray your long prayers to try to impress your peers. You who pretend to make disciples, but who actually make little Pharisees who are twice as much a child of hell as you. Jesus said that. You who strain out a a gnat, but then go ahead and swallow a whole camel. He concluded this way. You serpents. You brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? If we really truly listened to the words of Jesus, Acts 5 wouldn't surprise us at all. God hates the sin of hypocrisy. 
It is not a little sin. But that leads us to a bigger question. Why were they struck down? Why were Ananias and Sapphira struck down? Because as I mentioned a moment ago, it is not unlikely that there are some people in the room this morning who committed this sin just today. There are some people in this room who are right now putting on a charade for the rest of us. And you know who you are. I don't know who you are because you're good at it. You're trying to impress people with your righteousness. But inwardly, there is secret sin. God sees. We don't see, but God sees, and God knows, and God watches you worship. And the same God who struck down Ananias and Sapphira is watching your hypocrisy right now. And so that does beg a question. Why is it then that they were carried out in a body bag and and you're still standing? Why did God deal so severely with this particular sin in this particular moment? I want to pull out three reasons and then we'll bring it in for a conclusion. First reason, why did God strike down Ananias and Sapphira? Because cracks in the foundation are a really big deal. I want you to look again at verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, listen, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? This is, remember, the first, this is the first New Testament church. This is the first church that is filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus has has destroyed the temple and he's ground Judaism down to a single stone. He is the cornerstone and here he is rebuilding his temple. We are living stones being built into this new temple. This is, this is day one and a trajectory is being set. And these stories and acts are being recorded for us. They're setting a healthy trajectory for the church. And so what does Satan do? Satan comes into the scene in verse 3 and it's important that we see him there and Satan animates Ananias and Sapphira in an attempt to put a crack in the foundation of the New Testament church to destroy the trajectory from day one. See, thus far in the book of Acts we've witnessed real attacks on the church but all the attacks came from outside and those are scary, aren't they? As Peter and John were taken and they were put in prison I don't want to be in prison Nobody in that church wants to be in prison. It's frightening. And then they're brought before the Sanhedrin and they're put on trial and they're mocked and they're intimidated. And all these threats are from outside and they come back and they plead with God for boldness. We need boldness because there are attacks coming from the outside and it's hard for us when there's attacks out there. But what we see here, it's the first time where the attacks are coming from in here. And can I tell you, those are far more dangerous and do far more damage. Satan animates Ananias and Sapphira, and it's like when the the Greeks brought that Trojan horse into Tyre. Is it Tyre? Troy. It looks like a gift on the outside, but on the inside it is full of sin that will destroy the church from within. It's full of deceit. So you imagine, imagine this Trojan horse. Imagine it's now being rolled into the church. Ananias and Sapphira are smiling and waving. Inside of this Trojan horse, this apparent gift, it's filled with the sin of deceit. And if this gift is accepted, and if this goes unaddressed, then the church is now going to be filled with distrust. 
And is there any better way to destroy the witness of the church than to sow in deceit? Haven't we lived through this in our culture? I mean, just think about our own culture. What is the greatest attack on the church? The thing that has most effectively ruined our witness and our effectiveness in our communities. Isn't it the deceit? The wave after wave of scandal. Another religious leader fallen. Oh, look what they were doing to the little ones. Look what he was doing to the money behind the scenes. Oh, look at that leader in that small town. Look at him fall. Oh, look at this one. You thought he was great. Watch him fall. And as these have gone on, deceit after deceit after deceit, our neighbors don't trust the church anymore. And can I tell you what? For good reason. Your neighbor doesn't trust the church. When you talk to your neighbor about Jesus, their, their first disposition is that of, of wariness. That of suspicion. They meet your pastor for the first time and they just think, what is he doing behind the scenes? I feel that when I meet people now. And we earned that with this sin of deceit. And here Ananias and Sapphira, on day one of the church, they try to plant this right into the heart of it. Try to put this crack in the foundation. But this Trojan horse is not just full of deceit, it's also full of self-righteousness. And that might just be a close second for the most effective a weapon against our witness, isn't it? You know, if he can't keep us from doing good deeds, then what he can do is he can try to change our motivations for doing good deeds. When we, when we do charity to bring glory to God, it's a beautiful thing. But when we do charity to bring glory to ourselves, it's repulsive, and people see right through it. And here the devil is, is sowing some self-righteousness, trying to change the motivations of the people in the church. The sin of hypocrisy takes our worship and it turns it into a weapon against our witness. I'm going to explain that and I'm going to repeat it. Think for a moment about the young man who grew up in the church and he's not there anymore. How often is it the case that you talk to that young man and it's not an intellectual argument that makes him so angry at the church. Right? It's not as if he just found some riddle that he couldn't solve that's got him far away. What is the thing that keeps him far from God? It is that he watched his dad worship God with hands raised high, and then he went home and he watched his dad treat his mom like garbage all week long. And that worship that he watched, that worship, has been weaponized and has destroyed the witness of the church. And there are people all around us in this city who have seen worship like that. Christians who, who put on this show for the world. Look at my charity. Look at my church attendance. And they go into the workplace and they're crooks. And they gossip about their coworkers, And they gossip about their friends at the church. And the world sees that. And, and in our worship, it's been turned now like a weapon. And it's being swung by the evil one. And it's putting cracks in the foundation. And that's what was happening here on day one of the church. If this plan had gone through, if the Trojan horse had been rolled into the city and opened up, the witness of the church would have been over before it began. We would not have a church today. Thousands of people were coming to Christ. The witness of the church was powerful and incredible, but in this moment, all of that would have been destroyed as deceit and self-righteousness was sown into the mix. So God struck down Ananias and Sapphira because cracks in the foundation are a very big deal. That's the first reason. Second, Ananias and Sapphira were struck down because God is a consuming fire in our midst. You know, one of the things that we've been celebrating and delighting in as we have worshipped our way through the book of Acts 
is the powerful presence of God in and amongst his people. Uh, my heart was singing when we looked at, at the Pentecost experience and the tongues of fire fell on every member of the church. And in that moment, every member of the church became like their own burning bush. The place where the world could go to meet with the living God. Oh, it didn't used to be that way. Under the old covenant, if you wanted to experience the presence of God, you had to go to the temple. And even there, you would only get just a little glimpse of the presence of God because his fullest presence was in the Holy of Holies and only the high priest could go there and only once a year. But now in the New Testament, as God fills us with his spirit, people can experience the presence of God in each and every one of us. The living God, the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything through his spirit is now living in us and revealing himself to the world. And that's amazing. And this Jerusalem church was experiencing that glory in a particularly powerful way. In their infancy, full of faith, repenting of their sin, publicly putting their faith in Christ, God was doing things in and through them that were, it blows our mind to hear about the powerful works, the miracles that were being wrought in their midst the thousands upon thousands of conversions and baptisms, and rightfully so, we read that and say, God, I want more of that here. God, we want more of that powerful presence here. God was in their midst. But here we're reminded that while it is glorious to live in the powerful presence of the living God, it is not entirely safe. The author of the Hebrews warns us, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. We had a fire the other night in our backyard. And I was getting comfortable around this fire and, and careless. And a little, there was a branch that had fallen out of position and I wanted to put it in the right position, so I carelessly reached into the fire to move it. And I didn't realize how long the fire had been burning. There was just a lot of heat. And I realized, if I don't yank my hand back right now, I'm, like, it's scalding heat. I'm going to hurt myself. In the same way, when the consuming fire is in the midst of his people, those who are careless will feel the heat of God's holiness. In the same way that Nadab and Abihu when they carelessly entered into the Holy of Holies to present their offering, were struck dead on the spot. In the same way that Uzzah, when he carelessly laid hold of the Ark of the Covenant and was struck dead by God. In the same way, so too were Ananias and Sapphira struck down when they attempted to sneak their sin into the powerful presence of the living God. If you look ahead to the very next verse, verse 12 of chapter 5, Let's read this in light of what we've just read. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And if we just forget verse 1 to 11, where does our mind go when we think of the many signs and wonders? Immediately, we're thinking of the healings. We're thinking of the fire. We're thinking of the languages they never learned. We're thinking about the mass conversions, the power to, to speak prophetically. It's like we're, we're thinking, man, this is many signs and wonders. And all of those are true and they should be in our mind. But let's not forget the wonder that we just witnessed in verse 1 to 11. That was one of the wonders that God wrought in the church. One commentator notes, and I think this is such a helpful quote. 
I'm going to read it twice because I know you don't have it on the screen. The blasting and the blessing were the acts of the Holy Spirit in his administration of the work and the will of Christ. I'll repeat that again. The blasting and the blessing were the acts of the Holy Spirit in his administration of the work and the will of Christ. Are we hearing that? Both the blasting and the blessing were from God. The blasting and the blessing were the overflow, the result of his powerful presence. The blasting and the blessing were the sign that God was in the presence of the people. And we must learn that lesson today as we cry out for a greater filling of the Holy Spirit as we seek to catch the fire, we cannot forget Acts 5, 1-11. Lest we receive something in our midst that we are not prepared for. The same Spirit who brings the blessing brings the blasting. And His presence will be the death of those who have made peace with their sin. You remember the Philistines when they captured the Ark of the Covenant? It's one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. They captured the Ark Victory for the enemies of God's people. And they brought the ark back with them to their camp, to their home. They put it in the temple of Dagon. They put the living God, the ark, the the footstool of his throne, they put it in the temple next to their God, Dagon, added it to the collection of the gods in their life. Do you remember what happened? They came back and Dagon had collapsed. So they stood back up their idol Oh, my idol doesn't... Something happened to my idol. They come back the next day and Dagon's fallen again, only this time his hands have broken off and his head has broken off. Meanwhile, within the camp, they've got tumors breaking out within the camp. There are, there are rats infected with disease in the camp. And, and the Philistines realize that we cannot have the holy living God with us here in this place with our idols. And so what do they do? They send them away as quick as they can. Get him out of this place. We see that same story happening here. Only the church has the right response. They realize we cannot have the holy living God in our midst with our idols, with our sin. It, we, you can't have both. But rather than sending away the living God, God dealt seriously with their sin. And the church let that sin go. Verse 11 says, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. That's the second reason why God struck them down. Because He is a consuming fire in our midst. But there's a third reason. I think this third reason is perhaps the most frightening in my mind. Why did God strike down Ananias and Sapphira? Because our hearts are as open books before the Lord. If if you hear nothing else this morning, please hear this. You can fool me. And you can fool the people sitting in front of you and behind you and next to you. Some of you, you can fool your spouse perhaps. But you cannot fool the living God. Ananias walked into the assembly with his head held high and his offering in hand. And he looked at the men and the women in his congregation. He looked up at Peter and he thought, none of them have a clue. And he marched in with his head high and he offered his gift because he thought none of them can see through the charade. And Peter looked him in the eye and he reminded him of something that, that we need to be reminded of this morning. Peter said to him, you have not lied to man, 
You're not lying to us, Ananias. You're not lying to me. Is that what you think you're doing? You've lied to God. And Sapphira comes in three hours later. And Peter gives her an opportunity. He says, did you, did you really sell the land for so-and-so amount of money? And she looked Peter in the eye and she said, yes, for so-and-so amount. And he said, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Peter's asking, did you forget whose church this is? Did, in light of all that has happened, do you think that we're some kind of social club? Your charade, your deception, your hypocrisy, it's, you're aiming it at, at us, but it's not simply directed at, at us. You're attempting to lie to God, and you can't. As I studied and prayed through this passage, my heart continually shot to 1 Corinthians 11 to the extent that I want to read this this morning and I want to make sure that you hear this like you've never heard it before this morning. Please turn with me in your Bible ahead to 1 Corinthians 11. I'm going to flip ahead just a few books. Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. Stop at 1 Corinthians, verse 11. We read this every month and, and try to, to give this as much weightiness, as much urgency as we can every month. But here I feel like we're well primed to hear this as we should. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, to the church in Corinth, who were treating the Lord's Supper, which we partake of on the first Sunday of every month. We're going to be doing this next Sunday. They were treating the Lord's Supper as if it was some kind of game. They were partaking in a way that was unworthy. He's writing to believers. So hear that. He's writing to believers. And he's writing decades after the event that happened with Ananias and Sapphira. I'm going to start reading in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. What does that look like? Well, look at verse 30. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Stop there. So here, decades later, there is a church of believers who have been, and we can't wade into everything that was happening around the Lord's Supper, but who were living in sin, right? who, were, who were treating this sacrament, who were treating this ordinance, this thing that Jesus called them to do, this beautiful symbol of grace, who were treating it like a game, who were being hypocrites. And, and Paul writes to them, and he says, listen, there are people in your church right now who are sick because of what you're doing. And you don't realize that your sickness is because of this, but it is. There are people in your church who have died because of what you're doing. You didn't realize that that's why they died, but it is why they died. God struck them down because of this game that you are playing with the Lord's Supper, which is evidence to us that this episode in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira was not a one-off event. This is the way that God deals with his people. He goes on to explain in, in chapter 11, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged but when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined. Why? 
so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Have you ever thought about what he's saying right there? So he points back to these people who are sick. He points back to those who have died. And he says, this happened because we are not taking this seriously. This happened because we're not truly looking at ourselves and the lives that we're living and this hypocritical game that we're playing. And God has struck down some in our midst. Why? So that they would not be condemned with the world. Meaning, in 1 Corinthians 11 and in Acts chapter 5, we have these people who have set a plan in their heart. And this plan that they've set in their heart is going to do more ruin and more destruction than they understand. Did Ananias and Sapphira understand that they were about to destroy the witness of the church? Did they understand that if they had followed through with their sin, there would not be a hundred people in Aurelia at Redeemer City Church hearing the gospel because the witness of the church would have been destroyed in Jerusalem on day one? Did they know that? Probably not. They knew what they were doing was wrong and they had made peace in their mind. They said, it's wrong, but I want the attention of my peers. I'm going to do it. God struck them down before they could go a step further. These people in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, did they realize that they were on a trajectory that was going to lead them to hell itself? Did they realize that they were going to fall under the condemnation of the world? And Paul outright says, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, why? So that we may not be condemned along with the world. Meaning sometimes we set ourselves on a trajectory that is so ruinous that God in His mercy ends us. That is in the New Testament. That's in the New Testament. Have we ever come to terms with this? The church in Acts did. Verse 11, the story ends. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. When the Spirit of the Lord moves powerfully amongst His people, it is glorious and it is wonderful and it is something that we seek with all our hearts. But our passage this morning reminds us that it is not safe. He will protect His church from those who would put cracks in the foundation. He's a consuming fire in our midst. And our hearts are as open books before Him. And that leads me to ask one concluding question with one answer as we come to a close today. See, this passage is one that demands a response. Great fear came upon the whole congregation in Jerusalem. They understood we need to respond. We need to live appropriately in light of what we've seen. I hope and pray that in some way my explanation of this text would leave you feeling the fact that we must deal with what we've seen. Fearful news demands a response. If you go to your doctor tomorrow and your doctor tells you that you have cancer and it's malignant and it's going to spread to your internal organs, your vital organs, unless you deal with it immediately, and you walk out of that office without making an appointment, you're a fool. You're a suicidal fool. We all know that's true. If today the Holy Spirit is revealing a cancer in your spiritual life that is going to spread if you do not deal with it immediately and you walk away from this place pretending that you didn't see that, that you didn't hear that, then in the same way, you are a fool. 
One response. Repent. Simple response. Honest response. Straightforward response. The only response. So I'm just going to ask, is there an Ananias in this room? Is there a Sapphira in this room? Is the Holy Spirit pressing that conviction right now? I want you to hear me today. If you're feeling that press, that is mercy. Lay hold of it. Let that conviction drive you to repentance before God is forced to use something far more severe to bring you to your senses. Repent. Let it go. Confess it to God. Confess it to your spouse. Confess it to your brother, your sister in Christ. Bring that darkness into the light where it will shrivel up and die, but don't carry that darkness with you any longer because you are a child of the light. Do we want to experience the powerful presence of the Spirit of God His working in our midst, church. If we do, then corporately, I'm talking about all of us, our pet sins have to go. The grudge you've been holding on to, that has to go. That unforgiveness in your heart has to go. That addiction has to go. That fantasy you've been indulging, that has to go. That self-righteousness that you've made peace with, that has to go. That pride, that has to go. The hypocrisy has to go. With fear and trembling, confess your sin to God and be done with it today in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. G. Campbell Morgan has this quote, and this is so perfect. Either Ananias or the Spirit must go. The two cannot live side by side. I can't. So repent. But, and I want to land with this, but as you repent, don't despair. Because here's the thing. The same devil who convinced Ananias and Sapphira to make little of their sin would convince someone here this morning that your sin is irredeemable. I suspect he's whispering lies into someone's ear right now. He's telling you that you should never have stayed home and or you never should have came and you shouldn't come again. He's telling you that you're never going to be free of your sin. He's telling you this church would be better off without you. He's telling you Jesus has already written you off. And I want you to hear today that the devil is a liar. Fight his filthy lies with the truth. Here's what Jesus said. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus came for sinners. Jesus came for sinners. He came for sinners like me. He came for sinners like you. He came to set us free. He came to give us life. But He came to call us to repentance. So the devil would drive you to despair this morning. But Jesus would drive you to the altar. Jesus would bring you to the cross. To surrender your sin. And to see afresh that there is a sacrifice that has been made 
to remove your sin from you as far as the east is from the west. And so we're going to do something this morning that we rarely do. I'm going to invite the worship team up to join me right now. And I'm going to say this. If the Spirit of God is convicting you this morning, then I want to invite you to do something that is terribly uncomfortable. Because here's the problem with hypocrisy. The problem with what happened here with Ananias and Sapphira. It is a public sin. It's a public sin. They were deceiving the church. That was the, they were deceiving their brothers and sisters, thinking they could deceive the Lord. That's the heart of hypocrisy. Putting on a front for the world, but inwardly there's this hidden sin that they wouldn't let go. If that's you this morning, I'm going to invite you to do something that is terribly uncomfortable. In just a moment, I'm going to invite you to come forward to the altar to confess your sin to God. We're going to have our elders here. And I would say, if somebody who's with you comes forward, if your spouse comes forward, I would encourage you to come with them. Come with them. Because what we do in our confession is we're bringing that sin out of the darkness and into the light. We're acknowledging that this thing that I've been hiding, it needs to come out and it needs to be done with. I need to let it go. And so if if somebody with you is going or perhaps your good friend is going forward, I'd invite you just to go with them. And we're going to have our elders here. We're going to pray for you. The worship team is going to lead us in two songs. And you don't have the lyrics on your sheet, but congregation, I just invite you to give people a bit of privacy and close your eyes and and just worship the Lord. Sing these words in your heart as a prayer. But we're going to deal with this. And we're going to deal with it honestly. Enough with the show. Enough with the hypocrisy. In light of what we've seen, I just don't want to leave anyone here in a position where they might walk away in the same position as which they came. And so I want to read with, I want to close with a reading from 1 John chapter 1. And again, you can find this in your Bible. You can flip almost to the end of your New Testament. 1 John chapter 1. And as I read this, I want to just acknowledge, this is a, is a heavy passage. So if you're hearing this and you're thinking, man, I, when do I come up for air? The text ends with a holy fear falling upon the whole congregation. It is a heavy passage. But as I invite you to respond to Jesus, I want you to hear this truth from the Word of God. 1 John chapter 1, I'm going to read verse 5 all the way to verse 9. Hear this, you who are feeling the conviction of the Spirit. This is the message we've heard from Him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him... While we walk in darkness, we lie. Like Ananias and Sapphira, I would add. We lie, and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if the Lord would have you confess your sin and come into the light this morning, then you can come forward even as I pray for us now and as the worship team leads us in these two songs. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that your word goes forth and it never returns void. I thank you that if, if there is someone here who needs to sit under this message, Lord, that you have brought them, and Lord, that you have led us to this text, I thank you that nothing is an accident. 
I thank you, Lord, for opportunities like this, for us to sit under the weightiness of your holiness and your glory, for us to understand just a a small glimpse of the stakes, Lord. You have called us to be holy as you are holy. Lord, we acknowledge that there is nobody in this room who is sinless. God, we acknowledge that there are none righteous. No, not even one. We acknowledge that every single person in this room needs salvation through Jesus Christ, needs to be cleansed by His blood to wash our sin away, to remove it as far as the east is from the west. God, we acknowledge that with humility. We can't earn this, Lord. And nevertheless, God, in light of what we've seen, we acknowledge that there are times when we make peace with our sin, and we make peace with the light. And perhaps, Lord, for some today, perhaps this is not a, a this month episode. This is not a this year episode. This is a 30 years sin. This is a, this is a deep-rooted pride. This is a deep-rooted self-righteousness. Lord, perhaps it's somebody here today who, Lord, it's, it's in their marriage. Lord, and it's in the way that they treat their spouse. And they've been trying to deal with this on their own and they've been trying to set it right and they come in each week and they try to put on a show for the congregation. Lord, I have no idea. I have no idea. But I pray, Lord, that if there is any of this sin in us, Lord, if your spirit is moving in any heart today, God, I pray that you would give us the courage and the boldness to deal with it. Lord, to bring it into the light. And I thank you, God, that as we do that, there is forgiveness for sin. So, Lord, we confess. And we surrender ourselves to you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?